Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. In honor of Pride Month, we hear a 2005 interview with author Alan Hollinghurst recorded for Bookwaves on October 18, 2005, while he was on tour for the paperback edition of his Booker Prize-winning novel, The Line of Beauty. Earlier novels include his breakthrough novel, The Swimming Pool Library, along with The Folding Star and The Spell. The Line of Beauty became an acclaimed television miniseries in 2006, starring Dan Stevens. Currently, it is only available streaming in England. I would have the chance again in 2011 to interview Alan Hollinghurst for his novel The Stranger's Child, which was long-listed for the booker. His latest novel, The Sparshot Affair, was published in 2017. Line of Beauty as Swimming Pool Library takes place during the Thatcher years, which was an interesting time because it began in pre-AIDS in the gay community and ended up after that started. And you were also also working in a period of the ascendancy of the conservative government there, but also here in America. And today, even though the government there is labor, I feel like we're in the ascendancy of a second conservative era. No, I quite agree with you. Uh, I was very very struck by that continuity when I was writing the, the book that I was writing about, uh, what, though I remembered it very vividly as a distinct kind of historical period, but a period in which the changes that happened of the changes in the nature of public life are things we're still very much living with. I think Mrs. Thatcher meant her changes to be permanent, and so so far they're showing every sign of being so. It's odd for me reading it and reading about events that took place 22 years ago in England and making that connection with America today, and it seems like a fairly strong connection. Mm, Well, I'm glad you think that. When the book was first shown to American publishers a couple of years ago, they they said, no American will understand this this book. It's too too remote, Britain in the 1980s, which I found both unlikely and dispiriting. I was talking not long ago with an author, Nicholas Evans, a British author who writes about about Montana partially about Montana, but about America. And he said one of the differences that he found between writing about Britain and America is that despite the fact that class is very much alive in America, which no one admits to, when you begin examining British life, you can't escape class. Would you say that's true? I think it is true, really. I think it changes the whole time. And I think the sense of class was changing during these years of the 80s quite a lot. And it's something which I suppose is reflected in the book. Certainly, Mrs. Thatcher herself sort of moved away from the old sort of conservative gentry. I mean, what she liked was entrepreneurial types who made their own money. And there was a big shift in the sort of the class base of power during that period, I think. 
and young Nick, the, the protagonist of the novelist, who's sort of been brought up with all kinds of class anxieties of his, of his own, is sort of trying to negotiate in his ways with this sort of changing, if you can have a changing minefield of class distinctions. From the outside, even though the book is all from Nick's point of view, from the outside, he's kind of a gold digger. But from the inside, he doesn't feel that way and doesn't see that. That's right, yes. And I don't think his primary interests are sort of financial. It's almost something that happens to him. I mean, he's he's by design a rather passive sort of character on whom the, the sort of the forces of, of the age play, as it were, and shape, they shape him and sort of corrupt him in a way, I suppose. This is the same era, 1983, same time frame as your first novel, which was actually written during that period. Was it merely the comparison between today's England that brought you to go back those 20 years, or did it have something to do with feeling as if maybe you had never really fully dealt with AIDS, or what was it? Much more the, the latter, yes. The, the, the sort of similarities with the present situation was something which struck me as I was writing the book. But, yeah, as you say, my first book, The Swimming Pool Library, takes place in mean, the, the present day of the book. It looks back re- repeatedly to earlier times in the 20th century, but the present day of the book is 1983. And I was writing the book through those middle years of the 80s when this new book is set which, of course, were years in which the world I was writing about was being changed radically. And I remember toying at the time with making those changes apparent in the swimming pool library, but in the end I just decided to to leave it isolated in what had become. I couldn't have known this was going to be the case when I started writing it, but what had become a sort of historic moment. And then I went on, and my second and third books were both um, had more or less contemporary settings in the in the 1990s. I think I didn't see a way to write about AIDS to my own satisfaction during the time that it was happening. And perhaps I needed to be able to write about it as a a known historical fact rather than writing, as it were, in protest or to inform, which I suppose is what ought to bewail, which which was a lot of what happened with fiction, which actually emerged directly out of the AIDS crisis. I think that's sort of not the kind of book I tend to write anyway. It seemed to me almost as if Edmund White got bogged down. Several writers, Alan Gerganis as well, dealing with that particular period. There is a tendency to preach, I think. Mm. Yes, I think that did happen. Some writers found better ways of of coping with it than others, I think. I think I've just always resisted the idea of being told what to write about or resisted, if I'm aware of there being any expectation on me to write a particular kind of thing, I'm almost determines me to do something else. And my books sort of come to me in quite personal and to, to me actually slightly mysterious ways. And although I've always written about gay life, I've, I've sort of never felt that I was a sort of mouthpiece for gay people or gay concerns. I just wanted to write about my own preoccupations and to solve the kind of artistic problems that I've set myself that's another reason why I didn't do it at the time. And, I, yeah, there was a certain preachiness, a certain obviousness, a certain shrillness. I mean, perfectly understandable because of the extremity of the conditions at the time. Your books actually deal more with the capacity of money to give instant access to pleasure and the, the way sexual and artistic aesthetics are intertwined. And that is even by the title of the book, The Line of Beauty. Yes, I think that, that probably is true that I've always written about Desire, yearnings, often ultimately unfulfillable yearnings, and 
that probably is the, the most recurrent sort of thread in what I've done, I, I guess. And certainly, perhaps because I tend to have a rather aestheticized sort of view of life myself, I think I've tended to create protagonists or, or narrators who, with whose sort of aesthetic and sexual feelings are very closely related. I mean, it was partly to address this this question that I I wrote the line of beauty to sort of to see what what happens if you follow the aesthetic line to the detriment of other other lines that you could follow. That Nick is someone very much guided, excessively guided by his aesthetic sense, his desire for sensation of various kinds. The book is also one of the most realistic portrayals of what the cocaine era was like in the 80s. Very casual, very excessive, and happening around people who probably publicly condemned it. Yes, well, that still happens now, of course, where we're having orgies of, of hypocritical journalism about prominent people taking or not having taken cocaine. It just sort of doesn't go away as, as a source of, of gossip, speculation, scandal. But it did seem to me to be the the symptomatic drug of, of this period of of boom and sort of acceleration of greed, um, egomania, that sort of unrealistic self-inflation that seems to affect, afflict people when they get onto coke. And of course, the set the sense of suddenly enlarged, enhanced possibilities and everything, but the, but the horrible sort of undertow of it, which of course we see affecting one of the characters in this book in particular. It seems almost as if that cocaine is a metaphor for the whole 80s experience then. A high and an optimism that's fake followed by a very real crash. That's how it seemed to me, yeah. yeah. Alan Hollinghurst, let's talk a little about Thatcher's England and let's get a sense of how that does relate to today. It sort of came out of... Thatcher came before Reagan, right? She first came to power in 1979. And it was all a reaction to the malaise of the 70s, which followed the fact that all the optimism of the 60s didn't work? Possibly. I'm not a social historian. I mean, certainly there were a lot of problems to to be sorted out when Mrs. Thatcher came to power, particularly industrial unrest, the stranglehold that the unions had over public life. She had a strong agenda, didn't she? It was sort of shocking, but in in the nature of of shocks, of course, welcomed by, by a lot of people. A lot of people found it exhilarating. Her slightly masochistic thing in the British temperament, you know, about the, the stern nanny giving them a, a, a dose of medicine, which was unpleasant, but was good for them. What was the business uh, about everybody saying how beautiful she looked? What was that about? Because there's a sequence at a, at a dance, and everybody is remarking about how beautiful this woman is, and I kept thinking, no. <laughs> Did that go on at that time? I think it certainly did among, you know, she she famously surrounded herself entirely with men in, in her her cabinets. I think in her three administrations, she only once and for a brief period had a, a female cabinet minister. Otherwise, they were entirely made up of men. And to what extent she deliberately, sort of tactically exploited her, her sexuality, I don't know. But certainly if you read memoirs by people, I mean, Alan Clark, who was one of you know, an ambitious, in the end rather unsuccessful, wealthy Tory aspirant, fixated on, on Thatcher as a leader and as a person. The Fuhrer principle kind of blazing out of her blue eyes, which sort of turns him to jelly. And very funny things in his journals when he's, he's looking at her from behind when she's making, standing making a speech in the House of Commons and getting rather carried away by her curves. I mean, it's, it is very hard for us to understand, but it, it was clearly real. You know, What was it Mitterrand said about her having the, the eyes of Caligula and the lips of Marilyn Monroe? There was this nexus of, of, of sort of power and, and sex, I exploit it for 
comic effect in the book, but it obviously <laughs> uh, it was obviously real and serious enough for those who, who kind of were under her sway. Alan Hollinghurst, you've been compared to Henry James, Oscar Wilde, Ronald Furbank, and Proust. Not bad, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Actually, of those people, um, Henry James is the subject of Nick Guest's obsession in the book. Ronald Furbank apparently was a subject of yours. I've always been very interested in Furbank and wrote part of a uh, graduate thesis I did at Oxford about Furbank. And I've always been championing him to almost no effect at all. I mean, he's one of those writers who I think will never really be loved by more than a tiny minority. Who was Ronald Furbank? Ronald Furbank, 1886 to 1926. He was an extraordinary figure who wrote extremely original modernist novel. I mean, he really wrote the first modernist novels in, in England, although Joyce and Wolfe get all, all, all the credit for it. I think because of his, his dandyism and his camp and his gayness, generally, um, he's tended to be marginalised. He wrote in this... I mean, they're often quite difficult, particularly his early books. They're fragmentary and sort of lapidary, I suppose you could say. Very oblique plot it almost sort of disappears in them, and, and he, he creates this marvellous sort of mosaic of impressions. The later books are, are more sort of robust from a narrative point of view, but still not very. And they're all very, apart from his first novel, Vainglory, they're all very short, about 20,000 words. If you were to pick one or two that you would say, okay, you know, you love Alan Hollinghurst, try Ronald Furbank. Well, the last three are all the masterpieces. I mean, I, I love all all his work in that way that you do if you get you know, addicted to a writer. Everything that he does is of interest to you. But The Flower Beneath the Foot, Sorrow in Sunlight, and Concerning the Eccentricities of Cardinal Pirelli are three widely contrasting little masterpieces, I think. Are those the ones that are collected? Well, as it happens, there is a Penguin Classics edition of them edited and introduced by me. Let's, let's go back and talk a little more about the characters in your book and how you create them. Uh, but first, uh, this book won the uh, Man Booker Prize. Those of us who've read Alan Hollinghurst, okay, we're aware that this is a writer who should not be limited to a gay ghetto of writers. Did you find yourself feeling that way prior to the Man Booker? I never have quite, no, partly because of this thing of sort of not writing ever to sort of meet a gay agenda, but simply from the, the start having wanted to write straightforwardly from a from a gay position. And I was lucky in that my first book was quite widely noticed and was clearly was read by a lot of people outside of a, a narrow gay readership. There is a sort of gay literature which is written by gay people, published by a gay press, and has no ambitions to be read by anyone beyond a gay readership. But that's, I must say, I've always have been more ambitious than that. How one suffers from this, I don't know. I mean, my book, I think, has had sold less well than any other book a winner in the previous eight years or something, whether there is some residual kind of reluctance to, to read about gay things. It's very hard to assess this, this factor. And it's an amazing thing about the book that it does so much to, to sales, and it does mean that I am now being read by people who would have decided not to read me before, or indeed who would never have heard of me. You've said that from the start you've tried to write from the presumption of the gayness of the narrative person because you're gay. Is that pretty much just the way it, it is? as <laughs> straightforward as that, really, yes. There seemed to be so little that was written with that presumption, you know. It just seemed to me a, a really sort of urgent and interesting thing to do. The novelty of it, of course, I've completely lost any sense of now. I, I was aware of it when I was writing my first book. Uh, it's now just the way I write. 
when you first started writing that way, was there any thought of self-censorship to try to make it more palatable? Rather the opposite, actually. I mean, to <laughs> if anything. I mean, not that I was ever writing to, to shock, but it just seemed that writing about what was going on, what I people more or less like me have thought and, and felt was really <laughs> interesting and worthwhile. Really hadn't been done much in, in serious fiction in, in England anyway. And that there was a wonderful great big new subject here just waiting to be written about. Not written about sort of anthropologically by an outsider, but, but by someone who, who was sort of inside that world. You're listening to an interview with Alan Hollinghurst, whose latest novel is The Line of Beauty, now out in trade paper. Let's talk about some of the characters, because they're both individuals and they're also emblematic of the time and the culture. Gerald Fettens is the conservative MP, the Tory MP, that our protagonist, Nick Guest, who's a 20-year-old out of Oxford, comes to stay with because he's, quote, best friends with Toby, a relationship which you never do go into in the book. You kind of avoid that one. Well, I think it's clear, yes, Nick has had a great crush on Toby at Oxford, which has never been declared, because Nick himself has only really come out in his last term at Oxford, perhaps, and he doesn't. He's sort of wormed his way into Toby's affections. And Toby, who is, I think he's rather a nice person, really, a simple-hearted sort of person. He's rather pleased to have this clever young friend. Yes, I suppose I was interested in that, that thing of someone falling for someone they can't have and then sort of making do by falling in love with their whole family as well, wanting to be in a world which is sort of coloured by, by having this person in it. And so it is about the relationship of an individual, an outsider, to, to a family, about the odd status of, of the guest, the long-term guest in a family group. Which is the name there. Yeah. Well, is that, <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> uh, well, Gerald, Gerald Feddens is the MP. When you're working on it, okay, I mean, I'm trying to get the sense of the hypocrisy inherent in someone who would be pretty upfront about taking in a gay, gay kid. I mean, they all pretty much know that Nick is gay. There's no, nothing hot, hidden there. Yet he's part of this right-wing establishment. Yes. I think it's, it was supposed to be a, a, a typical of that particular kind of tolerance, which I suppose isn't only British. They're absolutely, as Catherine, the daughter says at some point, they're absolutely fine about it as long as it's never mentioned. Uh, so that it's, uh, yes, it's something that they, they know about. And you know, they are quite, I didn't want the Feathens and, and Gerald in particular to be sort of stereotypical monsters. I mean, he, he, he is a person of some charm and, and actually they're very nice to Nick, you know, and, and the, he goes there for a, a few months and ends up staying with them for four years. I mean, he, they, they sort of, they, get, they rub along together really quite. But they adopt him. Yeah, they sort of do. They, they rub along together quite well. But I think it seems to me very, very true to life that, that such natural, friendly feeling can coexist with a spousing kind of do dogma, which is sort of com completely at odds with it. There's also another character named Wadi. He's of Lebanese descent, but he's more British upper class than, <laughs> than the members of the British upper class because he's wealthy. Had you encountered people like that or like his family? Not exactly, but yeah, it was, a, it was sort of a, a type that I had come across at Oxford a bit. Nick's life is crossed by, by lives of, of people who are, have all been sort of outsiders of one kind or another. I mean, his first affair is with this young black man, British-Jamaican, Rachel Fedden's family is the Kesslers of this sort of rich um, Jewish banking family who come to Britain in the, I suppose, in the, the mid-19th century and sort of themselves been sort of assumed into the, the, the aristocracy. 
And one, uh, his father is a Lebanese supermarket tycoon who towards the end of the book himself becomes a, a lord as well. So you see the same sort of patterns going on. One is, in a way, a rather sort of synthetic, a created sort of character. I mean, he's the son of a Lebanese shop owner who's been sent to a very posh private school and turned into an English gentleman. Um, and he has this sort of veneer of polish and kind of disdain which comes with having both money and a good deal of personal insecurity. You take us three years later and then one year after that, so there's three segments to the book, there's very little explaining about the changes that are wrought between those years. And you did that deliberately. Why? It seemed to me it would just be an interesting way of dramatizing those changes to embed the reader in, in this unfolding, slowly unfolding story at the beginning of the book, and then to, to show the extent and nature of the change just by cutting First, I hope the reader is all at sea at the beginning of the, the second part of the book. It doesn't know what doesn't have the ref, the reference points to the characters in the first half of the book. And three years in a, in a young man's life is actually quite a long time, and I wanted a certain obliviousness of of his recent past to be part of, of Nick's character. So that, you know, he, he sort of and the reader, I, I hope, still wants to know what's happened to to Leo, and of course, in the end, does find out. But I think that sort of is also just a way, a way of controlling the material. I mean, if, if I'd gone into everything that had happened in the intervening three years, the book would have been a thousand pages long. That brings up the story of how do you create? Do you work from an outline? I sort of build up the world of the book very slowly at first. And usually books start for me with images and atmospheres and perhaps a notion of a relationship between two people. And they rarely start with a sort of a clear mastering narrative idea. The narrative is sort of generated by the details of the world that I build up, which is rather hard work and back-to-front way of doing it in a sense, but that's how it is anyway. And I accumulate notes, and I don't like to actually start writing the first chapter until I've got a pretty clear sense of the architecture of the whole book and where it's going to go. But having said that, all sorts of unexpected changes can happen in the course of writing. What was the uh, that first image or that first relationship from the line of beauty? Well, certainly the house where a lot of the book takes place was a sort of early presence to me. And the idea that you might write about this difficult and painful period, not head-on and oppositionally, but um, in the rather the sort of slyer, and I thought imaginatively more interesting way of getting someone inside that world. So there was a narrative proposition, I suppose, I gave myself before I'd at all seen what the overall narrative shape was going to be. I sort of saw it was going to be told from the point of view of someone actually rather beguiled by this world of wealth and power without knowing anything about it. Do you focus on the voice of the narrator or the voice of the story at all? I mean, what they call voice. I'm not very self-conscious about I mean, my first two books are written in the first person, and there it does take... I remember it's taking me longer to sort of establish the the voice because it has it has to be a sort of synthesized voice of, a, of an imaginary person who is telling you the story. Um, if you're writing in the third person, that's not such a necessity, and I think I've been much less self-conscious about it in my third and fourth books, which are both written in the third person. In the line of beauty, it's still all from one person's point of view. It's all from Nick. Yeah. What I'd done in The Spell, my previous book, was to escape the prison of the first person. The first person is is wonderful in all sorts of ways, and it sort of licenses you to, to do things just by virtue of their having occurred to the narrator. But it's a, it's a great trap when you're faced with the problems of how to introduce material out, outside the experience of your, your narrator. And I sort of have devices, as you know, my first book with having him reading journals and documents. And 
In the spell, I had four principal characters, and it was written in the third person, but each successive chapter was seen from the point of view of a different character. And I think what I wanted to do with this book was to get the, the consistency of narrative interest of having everything seen through one character, but to keep it in the third. I did toy with writing it in the first person, but I felt I needed more detachment. There needed to be more things that I didn't know and didn't offer to the reader. The line of beauty in the end all comes together, so it feels as if that unbeknownst to the reader who thinks he's just reading something that's meandering a little bit, suddenly it pulls together and you realize it was very tightly plotted from the start, or at least it seems as if it was. How intentional was that idea? It's rare to read a book where you don't know where it's going and then it hits you and you go, oh my God, that's the only place it could have gone. Well, of course, I'm very gratified to hear you say that. Yeah, the book, the first two parts of the book both have quite a slow tempo and the reader is sort of absorbed into the sort of social details of, of this complicated world. And a, a lot of the, the book is made up of sort of set pieces at parties. And I mean, the, the parties seem to me the appropriate kind of social gathering for this period. And the third part of the book, both shorter and brisker, and a lot of sort of narrative business of a kind which actually isn't the central interest of the book, I think. I mean, the things to do with political scandal and, and so forth. I mean, they're things which affect Nick, but they're not in themselves particularly surprising. And anybody who read the book you know, as a, a study in the rise and fall of a politician wouldn't find it terribly surprising or satisfactory. The point is obviously how, how these things impact on the life of, and feelings and thoughts of the, of the protagonist. How do you think Nick's going to do after the book? He'll land on his feet, I would think. Well, we don't. We, we just don't know, do we? As Ronald Furbank, in fact, always said when asked any direct question about anything, I wonder. We don't know about his health, of course, at the end of the book. I don't want to give too much away about it, of course. I've realized I have a habit of doing this, of, of tying up various bits of plot business just before the end of the book and then having, as it were, a sort of coda where all sorts of things are left undecided. And I hope that with the illusion of, of the sort of artificial world of the book sort of merging back into the sort of open-ended world of life. Do you ever think about coming back to characters from earlier books in later books? No, I don't. Perhaps it's just one thing about being such a slow writer, but after I spent five years or something with them, I've <laughs> really, really enough. <laughs> I mean, I'm sad to say, say goodbye to them, but um, not so sad that I want to bring them back. I, I do like each book to, to feel like a completely distinct project. Alan Hollinghurst, what did you do for the Times Literary Supplement for all those years? When I first went there, I was in charge of the arts pages in the middle of the paper, which reviewed theater and exhibitions and operas and so forth, which I did for about two years, I think. Then I became the deputy editor of the paper for about six years, which meant really sort of, as well, running the day-to-day -day life of, of the paper and editing it when the editor was away, reading every word of it every week, sometimes several times. And then... My first book had come out, and I'd sort of sold my second book, though I was only halfway through writing it, and I went part-time, and I became the poetry editor. And then, almost exactly ten years ago, I retired and decided I would see if I could hack it as a, not as a hack, but as a, as a freelance writer. And it's been touch and go sometimes, but the last year has been a good one. When you say it's been touch and go, it's because... Writing novels takes me such a long time. The touch and go was a sort of a budgetary one, really. I just got very, very broke when I was writing this book. Happily, it paid off. You also worked on something called New Writing 4 with A.S. Byatt. What was that? That was part of a series of 
a yearly anthologies which are published by the British Council or sponsored by the British Council. And they invite submissions from a wide range of writers as well as sort of unknown writers. And one year I, I co-edited one with A.S. Platt. Have you started work on another book now? One of the sort of side effects of, of having won this prize means that I've been t- talking about the last book a, a good deal. I mean, almost too much for me to be able to quite think clearly about the next one. I have got ideas for it. The world of the book is building up. I can't quite see it clearly enough yet to start writing it. Well, during that period, do you kind of feel as if you need to be off on your own, taking long walks and just figuring the whole thing out? Or how does yeah, that Yeah, it sort of goes by jumps. There are times when a, a new project is really getting going that everything seems to sort of funnel into it. And you, you, you see everything in terms of its, its reference to, its relevance to the, the idea. There are times when I feel imaginatively quite sort of closed. And there are other times when I feel sort of porous and suggestible. Do you feel that in a, in a period now, this is less true in England now, but it's certainly true in America where we have threats from corporate conservatives, corporate right-wingers, and even greater threats from fundamentalist Christians, that the writer has any obligation on any level to deal with this? Or is it easier to just kind of drift into whatever world you're drifting in and hope it comes in subliminally? I think so much depends on the sort of temperament of the writer. No, of course I think these things are... I mean, writers will inevitably deal with these terribly serious questions. In Britain at the the moment, living quite such a kind of gruesome political landscape, thank heavens. I know I would not be very successful. I mean, it's like we were talking about writing about AIDS earlier. I I know I'm not temperamentally the sort of writer who is going to be at his his best confronting political questions of this kind, sort of head-on in fiction. I've always worked more sort of personally and obliquely. But even saying that, Line of Beauty is a very political novel. I suppose it is, yes. And it was sort of an irony about the swimming pool library, that, although it was taking place in, during the first Thatcher administration. And indeed, the, the, um, the general election of, of 1983 takes place during the sort of historical trajectory of the book, but it goes completely unremarked by the, <laughs> by the narrator. You know, what does one mean by political? There's no political consciousness at all in the, in the narrator of that novel, but perhaps by writing it in the way that I did at the time that I did, the book actually had a sort of political effect. You know? So I think you're right that these, these things can happen sort of almost unawares. And Nick himself doesn't seem to have, he's got a little bit, I mean, he, he's aware of the hypocrisy of what's going on around him, and it's obvious he actually says he wouldn't vote for a conservative. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. He's, he's very sort of pliable, isn't he? And, and he's rather cowardly too. You know? He's not someone whom you often see standing up for his moral beliefs. But that also brings up the idea of social satire, which is on some level what we really are talking about here, which is both political, social, and yet often not even conscious on the part of the writer. I mean, you're exaggerating a little bit, but you're not looking at this and saying, I'm writing a satire. Absolutely not. No, and I was actually rather surprised when little capsule descriptions of the book started to appear around the time of the book, a shortlisting and everything, which just described as, as a satire of Thatcher's England, which I hadn't thought of it as being really. Of course, you know, it is in part a comic novel. A lot of it works through a, a comic depiction of, of the people in this world. But I wouldn't have said that it was a in a satirical tradition. I would say it was, a, it was in a sort of tradition of, of sort of social comedy, really. And I, I kept thinking, you know, maybe more Jane Austen. <laughs> yeah, I think, well, I think that's right. Yeah. This uh, new BBC adaptation of Line of Beauty, have you seen the script for it or anything? I have, yes. I've read successive drafts of it and commented on it and sort of been, you know, I've, I've, I don't have any power of veto or control, but I, um, I've been involved with it. 
And how do you feel about it? I'm extremely pleased with it, actually. I've been going on location a good deal over the last month, and my general feeling about it is very optimistic, actually. It's a sort of indescribable experience having something that you imagined on the page sort of turned into three-dimensional reality. But generally, I must say it's been a sort of exciting, gratifying one. The great thing about it is that you know, all the young people in it are genuinely young, and they're really just doing their... They are the age of the characters in the book, and they're just doing their first job out of drama school. Tim McInerney, I don't know if he's at all known here as playing Gerald. Did you have Blackadder in this country? He had a recurrent role in the different sort of historical epochs. That I mean, he's, very, he's an extremely brilliant comic actor. Alice Krieg, who... I like her. Yes, she's playing Rachel. Terrific, I think, actually. She has that sort of quiet, calmness, sort of radiance, indeed. Uh, but I think, you know, if we can give this away, I mean, when she finally turns nasty, it's going to be very scary indeed. <laughs> She's a fascinating actress, actually. Alan Hollinghurst, we've discussed a lot of these other writers that you have read and loved. Is there any writer you read now who's just gets you going? A Tolstoy, do you mean? Or, or you mean a writer of now? <laughs> Whatever. Um, <laughs> You're reading a lot of Tolstoy? I was actually I, I was having a huge Russian jag whilst I was writing this book. I tend not to read contemporary stuff whilst I'm actually writing myself in some slightly paranoid way. I, I, I just, so I read Tolstoy, Chekhov, Turgenev all the time when I was writing. Quite nice to read things from a different linguistic culture from one's own, I think. You've been listening to an interview with Alan Hollinghurst, recorded on October 18, 2005, while he was on tour for the paperback edition of his Booker Prize-winning novel, The Line of Beauty. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>